That's why I believe that he used a ruse or a lure or his relationship with her to get her to go peacefully and calmly. And so it didn't stand out. So they were immediately called in and they were helping. There was a search done. There was a canvas of the neighborhood. Neighbors were questioned. Some wooded areas fairly close by and those were searched. But by Wednesday, she still wasn't found. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home and you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed Color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones, and they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, and this is the final week of writing, producing CBS's Criminal Minds. Oh, so sad, Jim. But you know, you'll always be a writer-producer on it because that show will live forever. I think you're right. It'll go down in infamy as one of the greatest crime dramas in the history of television, which is pretty amazing. I mean, 300 and what, 24 episodes? Yeah, 324. That's a pretty good run. Yeah, it is. And the characters, we were able to really flesh them out over the years. It's pretty amazing having that opportunity. Well, and I guess I should say hi, everybody. I'm Francie Hakes, uh, Jim's co-host here on the podcast. I'm a former state and federal prosecutor. And with respect to Criminal Minds, Jim, I have to say that over the years, I feel like there's been an awful lot of education in that show. Entertainment, I suppose, in a dark way, obviously. People watch to be entertained. They watch to see things they don't understand or don't want to understand or do want to understand. But I do feel like you had the opportunity to educate in that show. Yeah, it's edutainment. Absolutely, because that's what I strived to do right from the beginning. And I actually made a deal with the first showrunner at Bonero. I said, look, if you help us do our job, then I'll be happy to help you do your job. And he was a former cop, so he got it. And we worked well together. And then when Erica took over afterwards, we worked well together, too. So the writers really did endeavor to help get real good teaching points out right from the start. And I have a feeling we're going to be talking about a few of those teaching points today. Well, we are, Jim. That's an an excellent uh, and sad segue. You know, one of the things that I've had the most difficult time with over the years watching Criminal Minds just as a fan and a viewer has been the cases about crimes against children. You've had quite a few crimes against children on Criminal Minds, and that's where this episode of Best Case, Worst Case, as we're calling it, Breaking the Case, comes in. Because this week we have learned about a crime against a child. I mentioned it actually in our last episode, just briefly, because at the time we were recording, this child had gone missing, and now we know a lot more. So let's dig in, Jim. Let's break this case. Let's do it. 
So last Monday, Jim, on February the 10th in South Carolina, a little six-year-old girl named Faye got off the school bus Monday afternoon and she went home. And there's video of her getting off the school bus wearing her adorable little shirt that said peace on it and her little polka-dotted rain boots. And she went home and she started playing in her front yard. And her mom was home and kept the occasional eye on her. And the next thing she knows, she looks outside and Faye is not there. And so they institute a search. They start looking. They call her name. And it's not long after that they call the police. So that's where you come in, Jim, first. I want to take our listeners really behind police lines about what happens in a missing child investigation. So when I was in the behavioral analysis unit, we actually wrote the child abduction response plan. And then we did a later version of it, an updated version, kind of streamlining it a little bit. And we then educated law enforcement across this country and around this world about what the first steps are, what you do immediately, what you do within the first hours, the first six hours, the first 24 hours. So there are certain exigencies that come into play because of the kids who are abducted and killed, 44% are killed in the first hour, 73% in the first three hours and 99% in the first 24 hours. So it's critically important to one, determine what the window of opportunity is, two, who had access to that child in that window of opportunity, three, do immediate door-to-door, car-to-car, area-to-area canvases concentrically around the last known sighting. And that's critically important because the chances that that child is nearby has to be ruled out before you start looking for sex offenders across state lines, for example. Now, there's certain circumstances under which you might be in a, in a small town right at the edge of a highway and, and there's a truck stop 100 yards away. Yeah, it's possible that somebody grabbed her on a truck route and took off. But you really have to look in tight circles around that house, because what we see is the vast majority of these abductions happen within a very closed environment. Now, if the child is unattended for hours at a time or days at a time, then the risk level goes up. When you're talking about a child who is six years old, who doesn't have a history of running away, who is very well kept and cared for by her family, was being monitored, albeit semi-loosely, by her mother in her own front yard, that's a very low-risk child in a low-risk environment. So it's a very high risk for an offender to take that child. But immediately when that mother was interviewed, she should have been asked, what was this child's routine? Was this child engaged in routine activity that she engaged in every day, or was this some kind of aberration? And so if she played in the front yard all the time, then one, somebody nearby could have seen that and taken advantage of the opportunity. But if this was also an anomaly that normally she played in the backyard, but today this is the only day she played in the front yard, it could be that somebody just happened to to grab her. But in this case, I would suspect that the girl this age this high-risk behavior, the chances of somebody just happening by when she was playing in the front yard is probably pretty low. And happening by at a time when the mother wasn't looking when she was checking on her periodically, again, low probability. So I would first look at anybody who had an eye line 
to that front yard or who had to pass by that front yard on the way to their house, on the way to their job, on the way to a friend's house, something like that. Well, and Jim, we know from accounts by the police, because they were giving press conferences, we know that there was a massive hunt. We know the FBI was almost immediately called in. The child abduction rapid deployment team were in, I think we were at six regions when I was there. There may even be more teams right now. I, I worked some with the guys on the card team when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta. Joe Fonseca, and as a matter of fact, was the head of that team and was routinely called to these terrible situations all over the Southeast. So they were immediately called in and they were helping. There was a search done. There was a canvas of the neighborhood. Neighbors were questioned. We know that on by Wednesday, Faye still had not been found. There were some wooded areas fairly close by and those were searched. But by Wednesday, she still wasn't found. And it's not clear to me whether they were re-canvassing or still making initial contact with some of the neighbors. And by neighbors, I mean houses within like, 10 houses of Faye's house were being interviewed. One particular young man was being interviewed. Police reported afterward that he was fully cooperative and that there was nothing suspicious about him. Okay. And they went away. All right. But what's really important is when you talk about searching the neighborhood, this should be concentric circles around the last known sighting. But every child size container should be searched thoroughly. And I don't mean just a house. I mean in every house, every room, every closet, every drawer, under every bed, in every car, in the trunk, in the wheel wells, everything should be searched. Because I've had cases, believe me, where children were found in their own driveway, in the wheel well, the spare tire area of a station wagon in their own driveway four days later, and that they actually just crawled in there to play hide and seek, and they succumbed to the heat. I've had that kind of case. I've also had a case where a guy actually hid the girl's body in a big Tupperware kind of container in the base of his closet. But his apartment was right below the apartment that this girl lived in, and she was there for days. And when his apartment was searched, somebody opened the door, called out her name, and that was it. Closed the door and went on. Didn't see her. Didn't pull everything out. Another case where a three-year-old was missing. And supposedly, the dumpsters behind the building where he was last seen were searched. And unfortunately, they were searched by literally pushing the bags around, calling his name out, and that's it. And that child was in one of those bags in that dumpster. And I could go on and on and on where law enforcement officers have unfortunately thought that they were looking for a live child who just maybe fell into something as opposed to the fact that even within one hour, almost half of those kids are already dead. Well, and Jim, it reminds me so much of the Jessica Lunsford case where the offender, who I won't name, where the offender lived just feet away from where the child lived. And when, and he was a convicted sex offender. And so he was one of the first people police went to and they interviewed him. The child was at that time alive and in his closet. And, you know, horrifically when they found her, she had been buried alive mm. outside of his 
his home, his, I think it was a trailer park outside his trailer uh, under, you know, three feet of dirt, just a, a horrific case. And so they spoke to this young man who lived very close to Faye. And it's almost as though you're psychic, Jim, because the following day on the 13th, Thursday, the 13th, was the day that the garbage men typically pick up. And the accounts are a little bit sketchy that I'm seeing on the media. But from what I can glean, Jim, it looks like someone, FBI or law enforcement, told these men running the garbage truck to be on the lookout for any items associated with the child. By then, they'd had a description of her rain boots and what she was wearing and her, you know, mm. herself. And someone found one of her rain boots and a ladle like a soup ladle mm. covered in dirt in a trash can, not necessarily associated with anyone's house, but in a trash can, a bin or something. And so they looked at that dirt and they were able to determine that it looked very similar to the dirt in one of the wooded areas that they had already mm. searched. And so on Thursday, they went back and they found Faye's body. The medical examiner has said that she was obviously brought there recently. So they didn't miss her when they searched the first time or maybe the only time, but she was taken there afterward. Well, that tells me something because she's a short distance from her house, the abduction site. The chances of an offender from outside the area taking a child, having her for several days in a place that he had control of and privacy in, and then bringing her back closer to a house is almost impossible. It almost never happens, especially because of the increased attention to the neighborhood and so forth. What that tells me is this offender was very close by and that chances are he spent as little time as possible moving her body. And that therefore, he probably got it away from where he lived as far as he could into the woods without spending too much time with that body and then ran back to his place. And he probably did it in the middle of the night. Well, and, you know, I, I feel like that the rain boot and the dirty ladle are, are so important. They're not telling us exactly what that means. But to me, that's as somebody who had not planned this, then decides to take her body over there and try to bury it. But the only tool that person had is a ladle, a soup ladle. It seems well, bizarre. It may not be the only tool, but it may be the only tool that he was willing to carry with him, hiding in his pocket while he carried her body. And so he had to juggle logistics and the fact that afterwards he may be seen with that or he obviously threw it away, right? Well, the shovel might have attracted attention is what yes. you're saying. Yes, a shovel would have attracted attention. And if he was caught carrying a shovel back from the woods, the first thing everybody's going to think is he's getting rid of a body. But if he could shove a ladle in his pocket and cover it, then... He can get away, walk back. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to be the wiser. Y'all, one of the things I love most about true crime is that the further you dig into a story, the more layers you uncover. And that's part of what I love about the puzzle game Best Fiends. The more I play, the more fun it gets. Reaching each new level feels like uncovering a new layer in a story, one you get to take part in. And the best part is, the longer you play Best Fiends, the more exciting it gets. 
I love the feeling that I'm on a mission and I'm strategizing how my fiends can best defeat the slugs. Best Fiends updates their game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. And Best Fiends treats the game like a service for their players. You don't even need the internet to play. So it's great when you're traveling. You can play anywhere on a plane, waiting for a plane, sitting on a subway, sitting on a bus. What I love most about it There are always new monthly theme challenges, so I never feel like I'm playing the same game. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. You can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Y'all, most of us have found out the hard way that getting into debt is easy, but getting out is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. But now there's upstart.com. And upstart.com knows you're more than just a credit score, and they offer smarter interest rates to help you pay off high interest credit card debt. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. They actually reward you based on your education and job history in the form of a smarter rate. Upstart makes it fast, simple, and easy to check your rate. And since it's just a soft pull, it won't affect your credit score. The hard pull doesn't happen until and unless you accept your rate. Free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is ranked number one in their category with over 300 businesses on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash best case to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash best case. Well, and to top it all off, Jim, here to add more craziness to it, Almost immediately after they reported that we heard from the news that the child's body had been found, it was also reported that a man's body had been found, Mm. though they were not in the same location. And speculation ran wild for about 12 hours until we got more comments from the police. At that point, of course, I was thinking murder-suicide in my head. I was wondering what had happened, or I thought to myself, Did someone in Faye's family discover him and kill him, Mm. you know, after seeing him around her body? I, you know, I obviously didn't know what happened. But what's being reported now, Jim, is that this young man was found dead on his own back porch just a few minutes after they found Faye's body, which tells me they went to his house Mm. after they found Faye's body. Or he saw them find Faye's body. It was that close. And he realized they found her and he realized they were going to come after him. Well, I should say that Faye's body was found just less than 500 feet from her house. And and his house was almost equally close to the wooded area. Yeah. So again, I don't know the logistics of it, but I would, I would bet based on the fact that offenders want to spend as little amount of time in public with a body as they possibly can. But he was looking for at least temporary concealment, if not permanent concealment. And that's why the woods, that's why the ladle, it's just he needed to act quickly. Sounds like somebody who didn't plan this out. Sounds like somebody who saw her playing in the front yard, probably on many occasions, developed fantasies about her and 
on this one day, whether it was because his inhibitions were lowered by drugs or alcohol or some major stressor in his life, he decided to act on those fantasies and took her. Whether she was the object of his fantasies all along, I don't know, but she probably fit into the fantasy one way or the other. It's unfortunate and it's graphic, but 50% of the child abductions in this country are sexually motivated. And it sounds like this guy was most likely sexually motivated. And because the other motivations are maternal desire, that's certainly not there. Some type of emotion like rage or jealousy, that can't really fit. There was no ransom demand. So we're running out of, motives. of options. Well, the police have said that that he was not a friend of the family. Like they didn't know him. He wasn't someone who knew her on a personal level. And so it sounds like your theory is most likely right. But Francie, the thing about it though, and I've seen this in a number of cases, even with girls in this age range, that it may not have been known to the family but he may have, if he had his eye on her, made approaches before. And something as simple as waving and smiling and saying hi, anytime he saw her, he would then appear to be a friend. And that may be why there was no alarm raised by a child, no screaming, no yelling. Nobody knew that she went missing until the mother went back and saw her front yard empty. And it's very possible that he developed this sort of acquaintance with her, unbeknownst to the family. Well, and I mean, at six, she was uniquely vulnerable to being targeted by Mm -hmm. some lure uh, that an adult can think of that a child won't recognize as a lure. Mm -hmm. You and I have both heard of and experienced cases like that where there are lures. In fact, Oprah Winfrey did an experiment. I don't know if you recall this. This was, was years ago where many parents who, specifically parents who had said they had talked to their children about stranger danger and not going with strangers when they told you to go somewhere. She ran an experiment where a man came up to a child, one of these particular children, and said, I've lost a puppy. Could you please come help me look for Ajax or something? And to a child, Every single one of them went with the man to look for his lost puppy. And of course, it was hidden cameras and Oprah mm-hmm. was using, you know, the, was showing the parents' reactions and they were all horrified that their child would go with someone. But it's certainly not a scenario they had trained their children right. for. Right. And that's the thing. And that's the problem with stranger danger because parents believe they're protecting their children. But what they are doing is, is, slicing out a small, tiny little percentage of the actual abductions in this country, and they're forgetting about or they're completely ignoring the ones where there is an acquaintance. There's some kind of thing that the offender uses to get access to the child. And as you said, it could be a ruse or a con. It could be a lure. And it could be finding my puppy, finding my lost kids, I'm hurt. Can you help me? Your mommy is sick and she told me to come and get you to bring you to the doctor so you can see her, you know, all those kinds of things. And there's a great book called Child Lures that you can read with your young children. And it's written by Kenneth Wooden. And that is a great way to actually discuss all these topics and not just focus on stranger danger, which, again, is only a fraction of the actual abductions that happen in this country every year. And not to scare everybody, because 
in the United States of America with 350 million people, there are about 160 to 200 long-term non-familial child abductions every year. So that is not a massive number. It's horrible that that happens at all, but that is the number that actually occurs. If you listen to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, you're going to hear that 800,000 children go missing every year. Well, the vast majority of them are not abductions at all. And, and again, the vast majority of them, most of them, 500,000, 600,000, 700,000 of them are very short-term misunderstandings, not abductions. And kids that go missing many times are runaways or they're hiding or they went with a friend. They're staying over a friend's house. They just didn't tell their parents they were going to stay out late. Those kinds of things. And they get reported missing. But in actuality, there are about two to 3,000 short-term abductions, non-familial abductions, and about 160 to 200 long-term. And of those, at least a third of them are not fatal. So it's not that there's no hope to get your child back. It's that you have to act quickly. You have to know exactly what's going on. Law enforcement should be called immediately and everybody should be separated and interviewed and all the details found out as quickly as possible. I'm not talking about wasting two minutes because if that child was abducted by a non-family member, then there is a high risk to that child. Well, and time is of the essence, as it was here. And I'm sure that the authorities there and the FBI, in conjunction with them, did everything they could do to find Faye. Unfortunately, it looks as though this neighbor who lived just a few houses from her and so probably wouldn't have seemed like a stranger to her at all, even if she didn't know his name. You're right. This is a Southern neighborhood. It's South Carolina. She's playing in her front yard. Everybody's got a front porch. She probably at least knew him to see him and to wave at him. And there was a map in one of the articles that she had a little bit of a hike from the school bus every day. So it was a reasonably long walk for her when she got off the school bus to get back to her house and she had to pass his house every single day to and from the school bus. Well, Francie, I didn't know that fact, but I certainly have seen that exact same scenario in Orange Park, Florida in a case. And the girl was seven years old and nobody could understand how she disappeared. In fact, the cop sheriff described it as like an alien abduction. Like she just disappeared off the face of the earth. And I knew exactly what happened at that point. And I literally went out to the neighborhood and I said, the person that did this has to live in one of these houses. And they saw this little girl every single day. And as it turns out, that's exactly what had happened. And seems to have happened in this case. Obviously, this guy was just a horrible human being and did horrible things to her. And it's just terrible. I feel so bad for the family and for the neighborhood and for the law enforcement officers who worked the case, because this is the kind of thing that haunts you forever, even after your career. Well, you know, Jim, there was a press conference um, earlier and the medical examiner was talking about her findings in both deaths. And she found that Faye was strangled, uh, asphyxiated. 
And that's all the detail that we have, really. I don't want any more detail. Then the offender apparently stabbed himself somehow or cut his own throat, it looks like. I'm not exactly sure. I hope it was painful and a slow death for him. It couldn't be slow enough to suit me. But the medical examiner, who will have seen hundreds, if not thousands of bodies, was crying as she was talking about this autopsy of Faye Swetlick. And you know, I think when law enforcement professionals who've been working in the field get that emotional, it tells you why it is so different when it's a child and how law enforcement move heaven and earth, whether they're right or wrong in their methods, whether they're doing everything they should, which it absolutely looks like they did here. They move heaven and earth and they feel it. The law enforcement officer who found Faye's body will never be the same. Well, having been an investigator on many hundreds of child abduction cases over the course of my career at the Behavioral Analysis Unit. I have unfortunately been in this situation way too many times. And the only thing that got me through it was the situations where we were actually able to recover a child alive and bring him or her back to their home and to safety and for them to grow up and live their lives. And if if that didn't happen, you know, it would be almost impossible to do this job for any time because it's just so horrible and life-altering. And I just have said this a number of times that unfortunately we've seen some of the worst things that human beings do to one another. And when it happens to a defenseless, sweet, innocent child, I just, I can't understand that. I can't understand why that happens in the universe. And, you know, it really makes me question how it could happen. Well, one last question, Jim, and I'm not sure you can answer this, but I'm interested in what you think. When you think about, so I look at this case like a prosecutor would, you know, I, I look at the map of the, that the child had to walk from the bus. I think about the opportunity that the offender had. I think about cameras on everyone's doorbell these days and everyone's got a cell phone and you know people work from home it's a gig economy it's just not like 30 years ago or 40 years ago when you know the mom was in the house and the dad was off at work and so probably there were big swaths of time in neighborhoods where nobody was looking out their front window really right this isn't that time and so what i want to know from you is it seems almost impossible when you think about all the confluence of events that had to happen in order for this guy to successfully either lure her or take her out of her front yard, even though it wasn't that long of a trip from her yard to his house, the, the odds of being seen seem to me like they would be huge. Right. Well, that's why I believe that he used a ruse or a lure or his relationship with her to get her to go peacefully and calmly. And so it didn't stand out. So anybody who would have seen her walking towards his house wouldn't have thought twice. And so, I mean, apparently they don't have any video of him grabbing her. They don't have any video of him or his car driving down the street at that time. So it's almost certain that he did it by simply waving and waving her over or asking her to help him in some way. And it's the sweet little innocent child who said, I'll help you, mister, that ends up getting killed. And it's, it's terrible. It's 
it makes my heart very heavy to know, and I really feel for the parents and the any siblings or family members of Faye. But I just I can't reconcile it. I can't reconcile it with with how humans should be interacting with each other. Well, it's impossible to reconcile. And so, Jim, one last point that I think is important for our listeners to know, especially those with kids and those thinking about protecting their children. You know, here in the United States, we have a sex offender registry. We may still be, we at one point were the only country that allowed a publicly accessible sex offender registry. And it's the law in this country that we have one. And so routinely people can go on it and put in their zip code and see all the registered sex offenders that live in their neighborhood. And that's important. And I'm glad we have that. And I'm very thankful that we don't live in these other countries that for some mysterious reason find that to be an invasion of the sex offender's privacy. The UK has it as well. It's crazy. So um, I'm no, grateful. the UK that- has a sex offender registry as well. I thought the UK had a registry that was not publicly available, was only available to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. We'll look that up and report may, back. Yeah. Maybe may, it's changed. Yeah. But it may, I know they have registered sex offenders. That's what I know. They do. But I don't yeah. think the public can find out who they are. Um, sure. But we'll we'll check it out. I'll report back on Facebook when I post about this episode. But my my point is that this guy, Jim, no prior offenses. I know. And that's something that when you were saying about sex offender registries, look, only about 7% of children actually report. And of those cases, you have to get convicted of a child sex crime to be a registered child sex offender. So that's an even smaller percentage. So now we're talking about maybe a fraction of 1% of the cases in which somebody who commits a sex crime is actually convicted and then put on a registry. So you have that. 99% of the offenders who who commit the crimes are probably never reported and certainly never convicted of those crimes. So don't rely too heavily on those sex offender registries. Certainly keep your kids away from people who are like that. But you have to tell them, have conversations, not just speak to them. Make them comfortable enough to speak to you about these topics. You have to tell them what sex is and what sexual victimization is. If they know these things, then they're more aware, they understand the threat, and they could help protect themselves. If they're completely unaware of the dangers of nice people who smile in their faces, who are neighbors, who are friends of their families, who are relatives of their family, who are part of their families, that there is also a risk from them. If they know this and they know they can talk to you about it, they are safer as children and you want to make them as safe as possible. If you're having trouble figuring out how to do that, there's a great book by Joel Kostaik called The Well-Armored Child. Read that book. And there are other good books about speaking to your children about sex and sex offending. And I believe it is a responsibility of parents to do this. And it's hard. It's difficult. And you want to keep your child sheltered. What you don't want to do is make your child so sheltered that they become more vulnerable to a sex offender. They're out there and they're looking for children every day. And they're going to target rich environments to find them, schools and clubs and sports and churches and community groups and neighborhoods. So understand that and react accordingly. I, I wrote an article called Four Things Parents Should Talk to Their Children About. And please, 
Look it up. We'll post it on our site. Read it and have a conversation. The thing I always say is, if you want to protect your child from a dangerous street in front of your house, you don't hide that fact from your child. You tell them the street is dangerous. You tell them that you have to look both ways. In fact, you hold their hand and you walk across the street looking both ways to teach them how to do it, how to navigate that danger. Why don't we do that when it comes to sex offenders and child abduction? We just think that by keeping them naive, we're protecting them and we're wrong. Well, we are wrong. And the other thing people can do is go to Nick Mick's website, nickmick.org, N-C-M-E-C, National Center for Missing Exploited Children.org. And also in every state in this country and in most communities or many communities, there are child advocacy centers uh, or there's an organization, for example, in Georgia called the Child Advocacy Centers of Georgia, CACGA.org. There's the National Children's Alliance, NCA.org. All of these places are resources for you to go to, and by the way, donate to, uh, who always need funds. They're all nonprofits. Go to these places and ask questions. Look around on the site, see what materials they have. And if there aren't any there that you think are suitable for your child, call. Call your local police department. Ask to talk to your Crimes Against Children unit. They'll come and speak to schools or churches. Get information to keep your child safe, whatever it takes. And we've talked about the real world. We didn't talk about the cyber world. There's an even greater present danger online. And a six-year-old is probably more adept at traveling around the world online than her parents are. And so you have to monitor what your children are doing. Again, have back and forth conversations with them about the risks and dangers and make sure that you know exactly what they're doing. And not just at home, they probably have access on their phones, at their schools, at the public library. Certainly had a very sad case of a 10-year-old girl who disappeared one night and she's never been found. And it turns out she was talking to a 30-year-old man at the public library right down the street when she was on her way to and from the grocery store for her mother. The fact is that the library erased their hard drives every night because they want to protect the freedom of whoever comes to the library to search the internet and find out and do whatever they want. To me, that's protecting the privacy of sex offenders, potentially, Jim. I know it is. And it was very offensive to me to find out that we couldn't even find out who she was talking to because that hard drive was erased. Anyway, it's unfortunate. And to this day, I believe that case still remains unsolved. And that was a good 15, 20 years ago. So, Well, there obviously these cases are rare, like the case of Faye Swetlick is rare, horrific. And one case is one case too many. But we want people to know how to protect your kids. And we wanted to bring you another episode of Breaking This Case because this is near and dear to both of our hearts. And Jim, you and I both agree our hearts are heavy today because of what happened to Faye. And I, I guess maybe there's something wrong with me, Jim. Uh, you know, I, I joke sometimes about a pine box sentence, but I'm not satisfied that the offender chose his own exit. I'm not satisfied that he was never really held to account, at least not on this earth. I'm not satisfied that we may never have any answers about what really happened or or why. And 
I don't know that those things matter so much to Faye's family because Faye's gone and even those answers wouldn't bring her back. But I'm still angry that he took his own life and that's why I will not name him by name. And that's another episode of Breaking the Case. Thank you so much for joining us. Till next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d, the number two, l.org.